Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunarne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 81 of the podcast, the topic is 2x community science, cancer map, and COVID-19 testing in schools. Our guest is Jesse Bohm, the scientific director of the Broad Institute's Cancer Dependency Map Initiative and an institute scientist at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. In this conversation, we talk about mobilizing the unique SciTech environment for health in Massachusetts. We discuss the Broad Institute's ethos and the Bohm Lab's cancer collaboration for rare diseases. We discuss the health tech map, test, and trace efforts and the pioneering three-month pilot program of weekly COVID testing for certain students and staff starting in Wellesley and moving towards other school districts in Massachusetts. We discuss how it got off the ground, the role of the Wellesley Education Foundation and, as a, and their COVID-19 Innovation Fund, what has been accomplished. We also discuss the future of health tech and the future of community scientists and community resource maps towards science 2.0. Jesse, how are you today? Doing great. Really excited to uh, to be here. It's a pleasure to pleasure to speak with you. Well, look, I think this is going to be an interesting episode. Uh, Jesse, you and I know each other from uh, you know from the school system and from the ski slopes, but uh, but you're a pretty serious guy. So let's let's talk about some science here. Um, I've read up on you too. So you're the scientific director of the Broad Institute's Cancer Dependency Map Initiative, which we'll get to. You are involved on a host of other uh, Broad Institute activities, including the Cancer Cell Line Factory and the Cancer Model Development Center. And I wanted to bring out and have you talk for a little bit of a second about this fact that the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, it's a kind of a unique construction, this thing. They wanted to put both those brand names in the center. Um, and you also managed to do this, right? You got a, a bachelor's from MIT and a PhD from Harvard. So, you know, you're all steeped in these uh, massive uh, Ivy League towers. So I yeah. have a massive respect for you now. No, I've certainly been really fortunate to kind of grow up in this environment. I mean, Cambridge is in many ways the you know, one of the epicenters of the world of biotechnology and cancer biology. And I've just w really wanted to plant roots and, and drive that forward as much as possible. Yeah, I think Harvard and MIT, you know, have a 350 year history of kind of not collaborating extensively with each other. And uh, after the Human Genome Project, the Broad, early stages of the Broad Institute, originally the, the Whitehead Genome Sequencing Center here in Kendall Square, that project, the public face of the Human Genome Project in 2001, really showed the power of scientists in academia working together to do something that previously had only been possible in the private sector. And this race to sequence the human genome showed what could be possible now if you turned that collaborative firepower and that technology firepower towards understanding and curing disease. And so it was around this time where Eric Lander, the director of the Broad, Eli and Edith Broad, these philanthropists from Los Angeles, 
came together to realize that we shouldn't end the human genome project. We should just apply this firepower towards disease. And so the Broad got formed to try to drive that revolution, bringing Harvard and MIT and the Harvard teaching hospitals together um, in the early 2000s. And I've been at the Broad for 15 years uh, ever since. And what we try to do is to do what, you know, many folks outside of science, you know, believes just kind of happens, that scientists work together regardless of their institutions, put down whatever prejudices or biases or territory they have, and work together to, to fight some of these uh, diseases that are affecting humanity. And that's what we actually try to realize uh, at the Broad. We're a community, a cross-cutting, horizontal we're a physical building, but also a virtual community of researchers, 3,000 researchers from across the Boston area. And we come together in the form of collaborative teams to try to tackle really challenging problems that can't really be solved by academics working in labs individually because scale and professionalism is needed. And they can't be solved by industry working on their own, sometimes because there isn't a profit motive. And so whether it's curing cancer or, or fighting COVID or combating malaria, interdisciplinary teams of researchers need to come together to fight those challenges. And that's one of the things that I've been fortunate to do uh, in the space of, of cancer biology. Yeah, Jesse, I mean, I think that's that's super interesting because, you know, you make a good point. If, you know, even at MIT, which I know well, right, uh, they typically have these named labs and you have an individual who's lucky enough to get, well, mostly tenured people, but but also others who just kind of build up their lab around their name. And whilst that, you know, might be great for the individual and, you know, if they're lucky enough to be good at fundraising, they can build a very significant activity. But it kind of stands and falls on that individual person and, and their abilities and, you know, to attract, I guess, you know, PhD students and then also kind of affiliate faculty. But it, it's really not a collaborative approach in the, in the way that you describe. And, and I want you to um, tell me a little bit how your projects sure. at the road are different than if you would have run them even at MIT or at Harvard, because especially these uh, two cancer projects, and then we'll, right. we'll get to some, some of the other things that you have been doing as a kind of fallout of, of your uh, professional identity here. Sure. Uh, but tell me, what, what is different about, for instance, the cancer maps and, sure. and, and this idea of collaborating even outside of academia? <clears throat> well, science is really all about incentives and the incentives that we impose upon researchers induce certain behaviors. And so the national incentives for most scientists are to compete for a small pot of funds and to write grants that you have a 10% chance of getting funded over a 12-month sort of period. And so all the incentives are to keep data to yourself, you know, pursue this mythology of an independent researcher, you know, with their own little territory working on their own. And unfortunately, that's the way science has been structured for, for 80 years. And when we thought of science as one little problem at a time, that structure and those incentives sort of fit what was needed. Now that we have these ambitious challenges, like the, we have the human genome and we want to use it to fight cancer, or we have a massive diagnostic challenge in the, in the case of coronavirus, we actually need to provide different incentives, teams to come together to, to solve challenges. And most scientists at the beginning of their career, when they're 20 or, or 25, they want to work together. They're sharing information about themselves on Facebook. They're bringing people together. They don't care about the rest of the world. They just want to work together. 
But somewhere along the way, when they become 40, 50, 60, they realize that they actually can't work together. They have to work individually. So what we try to do at the Broad, what I try to do in my lab in our cancer projects is to preserve that naivete, that youthful naivete, as long as possible. Because if actually young people want to cure cancer, they don't want to compete with other cancer researchers. They actually all frequently have been touched by cancer, a family member, a parent, um, someone they treated in clinic, and they actually want to make a difference. And so what we try to do is, is to preserve that as much as possible. In the, this is a really interesting moment for cancer, I'll just mention, because what's needed is very interdisciplinary. You don't, it's not about genetics. It's not about math. It's not about computer science. It's not about applied physics. It's about the integration of all of those activities. And what we're trying to do in our laboratory and as part of this big scientific project called the dependency map is to bring together these disciplines and do something in the laboratory uh, at a certain scale that would only have been possible uh, through massive international activities uh, in, in the past. And so what we do is we give cancer patients anywhere in the United States the opportunity after they're diagnosed with their disease to consent online to join our research study. A little box goes out, a bit of their tumor goes into that box and comes overnight to our lab. And then we try to grow those cells in a dish because what we're trying to do is to test every possible drug and use this new CRISPR technology to cut every gene one by one and systematically find all of the ways of killing every type of cancer. We call that a dependency map. And you can only do that in the lab. You can't give every drug to every patient randomly around the world in the clinic, but we can do that in the lab. And so this project involves thousands of these cells that grow in dishes, lots and lots of drugs, every drug ever tested against any disease and, and CRISPR, and we try to produce this map. And this map is really important for guiding drug companies, uh, small and large, to work on the best targets and to repurpose new, new therapies. And so this is a foundational activity for the field. Look, I, I love the way you describe it because, you know, on your website, there's also other ways to describe this. And, you know, I, I think the overall domain, right, functional genomics, it's not really two terms that are so easily digestible, really. Yeah, it's hard. You know, um, if, you're, if you're a cancer patient, you know, if, when you were a cancer patient maybe 20 years ago, you would go to the clinic and your doctor would say, oh, you have breast cancer, you know, here's some highly toxic drug. So that was kind of before what we call precision medicine, which is the, this current revolution. Now we have this belief and we see the evidence of it working after the human genome that you can analyze the broken genes in your tumor and prescribe a therapy that works for you. And that works for about 25% of cancer patients today. It's, it's really amazing when it does work, but there's 75% where it doesn't work. And that's what we have to do as a field to make sure that every patient can, can reap the benefits of precision medicine. Just at the surface of it, before we move to the other topic that I really also wanted to discuss, uh, so the price has really dropped quite a bit for full genome sequencing. And I think there was a 2014 kind of, I don't know if it's an emotional or if it's a truly uh, consequential milestone where I believe Illumina reached uh, a uh, $1,000 price tag for, the, and then the a price war kind of started with the Chinese and, and yeah. this, and, and then Veritas, I believe, came in and and have, you know, done various experiments claiming that, you know, the price will soon be down into $200. How important is something as simple as the price of a, of a test for 
both, I guess, the viability of, of this as a method sort of throughout medicine and, and in terms of the visibility of, of this approach, you know, among everybody. Yeah, well, new, new technologies as they're applied to the clinic, you know, go in cycles. First, you have the initial research demonstration that something is possible. In the case of the human genome, it was spending $6 billion to show that you could do it once, way before anyone had any sense that this is what the future was going to look like. And then instead of just doing one genome, then you could apply that in the laboratory as costs began to drop of the the DNA sequencing technology, you could begin to do that in the research laboratory with thousands of genomes and thousands of cancer genomes and start to collect all these broken genes that cause cancer. And then as the price dropped even further, you could begin to think about applying that clinically. And so now that we're at about a $1,000 genome, it's possible. And there were some regulatory changes a few years ago that is now making this even more widespread. If you're a cancer patient with advanced metastatic disease or drug-resistant disease, for a few hundred dollars, up to a thousand dollars, you can have your genetic profile sequence. So this democratization over a 20-year period of an initial vision through a scale-up phase in the laboratory and the democratization to the sense that now anybody can have that for a small amount of funds is that kind of hope hype cycle um, that, that new technologies go through. The problem is that even a free genome isn't enough to cure cancer. I can tell or a clinician can tell a patient all of the broken genes in his or her tumor, but for only 25% of patients, can that clinician actually act on that information? And why is that? Because these medicines uh, are too uh, rare to have been commercially developed as, as treatments? It's an interpretation challenge. The average tumor might have 72 broken genes. And every tumor might have a different 72 broken genes. And we only have about 200 cancer drugs in aggregate. So if you see 72 broken genes in a tumor, we can now say maybe one of these 18 drugs might work. But we don't exactly know which of the 18 drugs. Sometimes they've been tested for a different tumor type, but we don't know for sure it's in this tumor type. And sometimes the information from the genome hasn't been very well studied, so we don't really know. So it's an interpretation challenge. So what we think needs to be done is to be systematic about testing every drug and cutting every gene with CRISPR systematically in the lab. That's this dependency map. Growing cells in every cell from every tumor at now assessing 30,000 different ways of killing it. And as you do that, patterns emerge. And then in the future, in 2030, when a patient comes into the clinic, the genome will be $10. So we'll be able to sequence the genome. And because we will have this dependency map, this lookup table of all the ways of killing cancer, we'll actually be able to take those genes, look on the map, and not only have the information, but also produce a result that will tell the patient which drugs to take. So that's kind of this arc. And that's, that's, the that's second a piece fantastic arc. But, but, but like you said, there's only, that was surprising to me. There's only 200 cancer drugs at the moment. Are you confident that, well, first of all, how long did it take to develop these 200 and, and how long is it going to remain 200? And I guess, you know, out of that question, again, you said these 30,000 ways to kill it. How many drugs would you ideally need? Do you think even to just deal with these 30,000 ways. And I'm sure, you know, within 10 years, you'll find another 30,000 ways to, to kill these, uh, you know, these uh, nasty uh, buggers. But, you know, 
200 drugs? That's not an enormous amount. Yeah, it's an interesting question. When I say 200 drugs, some of them are a whole bunch of different drugs with different names, but that all kind of do the same thing. So 200 different flavors of drugs. Yeah, the average cycle from initial concept to having a drug in the clinic is, you know, 15 or 20 years. So it's a it's a long period of time. I think, you know, we can look at the the cycle of coronavirus vaccine development just in the last 9 months and it may be that some of the rules that are written in stone of how long things take, whether it's developing a vaccine or developing a cancer drug, are not actually, you know, speed of light restrictions that can't be crossed. The the challenge in the history of developing cancer drugs the reason it takes so long is that most drugs fail. So what we believe is if you choose the right cellular targets to begin with, and you actually know which patient populations to do your testing in, you might be able to reduce 20 years of activity to six or seven years. And there's a lot of evidence that that actually uh, you know, could, could happen. It turns out if we look in the dependency map, if we could have chosen 20 drugs to block 20 genes, and we could choose the right 20 drugs, I can give you a set of 20 drugs and guarantee that at least one of them will work for almost every type of tumor. So it's not only a numerical challenge, it's choosing the right Achilles heels of cancer to build drugs against so that every patient will have at least one or two uh, drugs that can block their tumor. So there's a uh, there's sort of a reduction in the complexity once we have the full map laid out. It's going to take 10 years, and there's a whole set of challenges ahead of us. But I do think by 2030 and by 2035, we'll have many of the drugs we need to deliver the right therapies uh, for an increasing fraction of, of patients. That's fantastic, Jesse. We'll talk a little bit more about the next decade in a second, but I wanted to move to this very exciting project that you undertook together with your wife and which my kids and many, many other kids are benefiting from in this very precarious moment in kind of human history. Tell me about this idea that you two got uh, about testing and how, how you got to it and w what is this idea that schools should start testing for COVID? Yeah, so I think this, you know, what we've learned is that, you know, 10 months ago, no one knew anything about coronavirus, and now there are some world experts. And so, you know, whether one is a cancer biologist or a mathematician or anything else, the transition time from being exposed to something and then actually developing some serious expertise is is, is reduced. And so we really looked at the challenge of testing um, and, and decided to dive right in. As a cancer biologist, I've always appreciated the importance of data. A clinician can't act unless they know what they're seeing in front of them. We need actual data. Where is the cancer? Is it coming back? How many cells are there? Which patient should I treat in what order? As scientists, we make decisions based on data. My wife, who's a high school biology teacher and myself, as we started to see how many organizations were making decisions about coming back to work, we realized that there were some types of organizations that, like cancer scientists, were making decisions based on data. Private companies, often biotechnology firms and hedge funds and other things like that, they were starting to test their uh, employees in the spring to ensure that they had the data that would tell them that coming back to work was safe. As the summer rolled on, hundreds of universities got together, private universities and, and also private schools, 
got together and they said, you know, we need data also. We're not going to make decisions about whether to keep our university open or closed on a whim. We're going to make decisions based on data. And what we realized over the summer is for a number of reasons, that conversation really wasn't being had in earnest in the public school setting. And we believed that it was a moral obligation to ensure that public school students and staff in every district across Massachusetts and across the country would as soon as possible have access to the same type of SARS-CoV-2 testing, weekly testing that uh, some of our richest uh, employers and private universities were having. And that initiated um, what's been a five-month journey um, that I think has put districts like ours really at the front lines of showcasing what's possible. But so, Jesse, the interesting thing here is I think all of us who had kids had that idea, uh, but you're the only one that, to my knowledge, that did something about it. it how, what is it that you guys decided that you could do? And and tell us a little bit about sure. this experience. And, and now that it seems that you can kind of scale it up and learn from it, wh- where are we? So give us, give us yeah. sort of the... Because this was a nice idea and you had some insight, but this is real. You, yeah, you, yeah. you are testing kids today. And, and you know, I just uh, signed, uh, you know, a testing kids t- a kid yesterday. Yeah, we you implemented this. Yeah, I think that the, the punchline is what we've been able to do in our town, Trond, is to test every high schooler, every middle schooler and every staff member weekly um, for the last 10 consecutive weeks with 80 percent participation We've prevented a major outbreak. We've shut and open schools using data. And our district is one of several across, that are becoming templates across Massachusetts and the nation for how testing could be rolled out. So I think what, what you have to realize is that at the Broad, we like to tackle challenges that seem impossible. We, we, we all know that real revolutions happen, real scientific revolutions happen when someone has a great idea, but they're not swayed by the complexity. They take that idea, whether it's putting someone on Mars or doing COVID testing in public schools, and then they break that idea down into a set of components that are needed to get from where you are today to actually implementing that idea. And that's what we did over the summer, bringing scientists together to create recommendations, Creating, bringing financial experts together to think about how to finance a testing program, bringing MIT Sloan business school leaders together, including Simon Johnson, an economist from MIT, and others to think about the operational aspects. And then someone needed to volunteer their school district uh, to be the guinea pig. So we decided to do that in Wellesley. We organized within our town, but we realized as a wealthy district, we had an obligation to move together as a group of districts together. And so we built a collaborative of six districts uh, that are now have been working together to implement public school testing. Wellesley is a bit further ahead than some of the others, but each of them has a recipe. Each of them has been implemented testing programs in different sort of ways. And we're really, we're really proud of what's been accomplished thus far. So I have two thoughts around this right now. The one is when you explain it, it sounds so intuitive and easy. It's like we just put together the, these people and then we just test it. And, and kind of, yeah, so you know, this is also, yeah, exactly. So this is also late in the day, right? And kind of, at least for me, since I have seen that this testing is there, you start thinking, well, of course it's there. 
But but tell me why was this so difficult? I mean, yeah, so there were, I think surely this is the first time this has ever happened. Data driven decision making in a school system like this. Yeah. So I think the, the the biggest challenge is that the average municipality doesn't have an organization where this type of activity maps to. So what the pandemic laid bare is all of the challenges and also opportunities that are local, regional, and national institutions, um, you know, impose upon us. And so in our town, this fell somewhere awkwardly between the Board of Health, the school committee, the Board of Selectmen, and a few other groups. And so decisions needed to be made in days, in weeks. The opportunity for what types of testing companies were even available as partners were changing every single week and continue to change. The, the scientific recommendations of what would produce a value and what wouldn't produce a value were changing extremely quickly every few months. And so you have this perfect storm of institutions that typically act over years. You have science and technology that's evolving in real time, even so fast that it's hard as scientists to keep up. And then you ask, how can most municipalities not be able to make quick decisions? And so what, what we decided to do is to try to reduce the complexity. Our, our superintendent and our school committee and our boards of health, they were dealing with so many things. What we tried to do is to keep looking over the horizon every single week, engaging companies. What was coming? What did they need? What were the blocking issues? Engaging scientists. What were they thinking? What were they recommending? Thinking about the legal and the ch other types of challenges. And to organize all of that information in the form of well-written memos. And then to reduce the complexity to two or three options. And with those and two Jesse, or three how options, did you get the school on board for, you know, to, to do this? Because I guess as I'm thinking about how we can spread the word about this, you know, really around the world, it seems to me that one of the big challenges for you initially must have been the money. And clearly, you know, Wellesley is a very wealthy district and, and that has an impact. The second you talked about, you know, was the scientific committee. There are not all school districts that would be able to produce, and we can talk about this in a second, but you know, yeah. you had chief infectious disease doctors at, at big hospital systems that live here in Wellesley. So there are some unique advantages. But you have now distilled this process, as I understand it, down to a template. That's right. So you don't need to be Wellesley the next time yeah. you're going to implement something like this. And, and actually, I, I think the wealth is a bit of a, a red herring, you know, to be very honest. We've raised, for instance, an equivalent amount of funds for other districts in Massachusetts that have been unable to actually use those funds to put in motion a testing program. The amount of funds that was needed here ended up being about $500,000. Not nothing, but actually funds that actually every district in Massachusetts was allocated as part of the CARES Act to make decisions on. So it really wasn't about funds. It was about the nimbleness of acting on those funds. And I will say the big equity difference here was that while some other districts in Massachusetts were simultaneously fighting probably a hundred challenges from poverty to hunger to special, all sorts of things, the number of challenges that our school committee was facing was, was smaller. So I think, I think that that is the, the, the biggest difference. Our superintendent decided quickly that this was something that he wanted to take on. The school committee got behind the concept as well. I think it was very important that the, you know, I've seen this intersection between scientists 
and public policymakers. I've seen all sorts of ways where that goes wrong. When the scientists are too opinionated or too paternalistic or too prescriptive, I think what, what I had learned over the years at the Broad from, you know, Eric Lander, who's the, the director of the Broad, worked on Obama's President's Council for Science and Technology Advisors. So we have a long history of folks and, and I have mentors that have worked at this intersection of science and public policy. You have to pr provide recommendations that are um, well thought out, but not overly prescriptive, certainly not self-indulgent, certainly recognizing that decision making isn't all about science. It's about science and emotion and politics and all these other things. And I think by packaging our recommendations and by building a coalition and by really influencing, uh, we were able to, to make some decisions. It, it helped that in town, the memorandum of understanding between the teachers association and the school was predicated on having a, a, a testing plan. That was something that was a, a, a tool that we enabled the superintendent and the the, the, the teachers association leader to use in their negotiations. And they used that and they decided this was something that needed to, to be done. And I think other districts have had difficulty reconciling di differences of opinion between teachers associations and the school committee without um, th this opportunity. Every so district about, everywhere wants data. Speak about where we are right now with the implementation so, of this, because you, as you pointed out, it's not necessarily the money, although there is some money because yeah. it isn't you know, uh, possible perhaps always on public funds. But let's just say where you started with Wellesley and you said uh, five others. Yes. But you want to move it to Massachusetts. Uh, where's that going? And then you have some idea of moving it nationally. And then I have some idea of spreading this tape, you know, worldwide. Yeah. So wh where is this going and how realistic is it that others in other jurisdictions can make use of the template that you are making out of this? Right. So in, in Wellesley, we've, over the course of 12 weeks, we've tested 15,000, we, we've done 15,000 tests. We've tested most individuals about 12 times once a week. We've caught 19 cases. As I mentioned, we prevented an outbreak and instead of shutting down all the schools, we only shut down one school. We kept others open. So we think we've prevented just serious disaster uh, in town. And so we, we've really clearly seen the value of that. The other districts in the collaborative, we formed this uh, collaborative. We call it the Safer Teachers, Safer Students Collaborative of Somerville, Revere, Chelsea, Brookline, and Watertown. Watertown's been testing its staff uh, for a period of time and is now moving to, to school kids. Somerville has begun testing. Brookline has implemented a different type of testing program and Chelsea and Revere are, are ready to go. Over the course of the, the summer and the fall, uh, 14 other districts have wanted to participate. We have calls every two weeks. Our first call was seven people in July. Now, just a couple of days ago, we had 100 people on the last call, including, including a congressman-elect, members of Ed Markey, uh, Alice Peisch, and Elizabeth Warren, Senator Warren's um, staff, members of the Rockefeller Foundation, who is one of the nation's leading think tanks, uh, who have issued a number of reports, just one last week on SARS-CoV-2 K-12 testing, making the nationwide recommendation that teachers ought to be tested twice a week and, and students uh, once a week. We met with um, Health and Human Services Director in Massachusetts, Secretary Sutters, a few times. And so the conversation is quickly uh, growing. Now that we've shown it's possible in these districts, including Wellesley, the missing piece is an equitable rollout to all districts in Massachusetts. There are basically three 
laboratory vendors and providers that have the appropriate process and scale and are setting their sights on, on public schools. The, the vendor that we've used in Wellesley, it, it's called Miramis. It's a, it's a vendor out of Brooklyn, New York, a spin out of Cold Spring Harbor Labs, uses saliva. And so for us, the big innovation was not so much the test, <clears throat> which is a PCR test, but two things, the ability to collect samples at home. So students, as you know, <clears throat> as you know, Trond, take a kit from school, spit in it at home and, and bring it back. And that's really important for a couple of reasons. One is it reduces the logistical overhead that a school needs to implement. And two is it allows the company to pool many samples together. And when they see a pool that's positive, quickly reflex that same sample down to figure out who it actually was. I mean, it's, it has been very efficient. The, the biggest limitation in our house has been my poor eyesight because these, uh, you know, these letter codes the are extreme. Yeah. The barcodes have very uh, small letters, yeah, small so print. So what we have now is we have three organizations, um, the Broad Institute and, and CIC Health, Ginkgo Bioworks, Miramis. <clears throat> There's a couple of others in the wings, but those are the three that are preparing major offerings for public schools in various ways in the new year. Um, the laboratory capacity is being expanded. We're all very hopeful that with this new stimulus project, uh, new stimulus grant uh, that's hopefully will be signed by our president in the next uh, few days, this will provide funds for the state, for public schools that will allow public schools in the state to make decisions about how to use those funds. And one of the decisions we think uh, ought to be made is to deploy testing surveillance testing regimens for all public school kids uh, in Massachusetts. So we hope that those funds will be in place soon. We hope that the laboratory capacity will be in place by the end of January. And we hope that Wellesley and the other districts in uh, the other groups in this district will be templates where people can say, see, those guys did it. Um, this is how we can roll this out. And Jesse, are you writing this up as a report so that it's uh, visible for, for folks who don't live here or, or around here and uh, are not coming on your calls? I mean, is this feasible to implement just from a, 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 like reading about this? <clears throat> it's, it's tricky. It requires a lot of uh, buy-in. The, the short answer is yes. So we've, we're organizing our final reports. We're planning to submit a medical article uh, to the New England Journal, the congressman-elect Auchincloss is organizing, who's been a real advocate for testing in the public school setting, is organizing kind of one-pagers, which are showcasing the experience of different districts. Salem, Massachusetts, has recently cloned the Wellesley program and started doing the same program um, just uh, last week. Um, and as I mentioned, the Rockefeller Foundation is has interviewed all the districts across the country that have implemented testing pilots and is aggregating those experiences and those anecdotes into a forthcoming uh, national, uh, a national report. So all of these experiences are going to be bottled up and presented. You know, it, it does require a lot of buy-in. This is very complex. It requires a program manager in each district. You know, it's, it's hard to layer this on to someone else's time. It requires some software engineering solutions that, Tron, frankly, we had to duct tape together in town, Google Forms, and you mentioned your eyesight on those barcodes. All those problems are going to disappear um, in the next couple of weeks with some, there's some new Kendall Square startups that are, that are solving those problems to produce portals and apps um, that are going to replace some of the, the clunky bits um, that we've been experiencing uh, in Wellesley. It is going to take commitment 
parent commitment. We, we ran many webinars in town. We surveyed parents multiple times. We learned that 95% of families were supportive. We learned that teachers were supportive. And tonight, uh, in a couple of hours, there'll be a school committee meeting presenting the results of a town-wide survey in town about the emotional impact uh, from students and staff and parents' perceptions of safety with and without the, this program. And what I can tell you is that there's been a sea change in the perception of how safe it feels to be in school within our parent population and within our educator population because they're confident now that they have we have data that tells them that there's very likely to be zero or very small number of cases in school. And so data is an important antidote to fear. And we're seeing that really play out with these with these survey results. So I'm hopeful there may be differences between Wellesley and other districts. There are important socioeconomic differences um, and there are important gaps to be closed. But I'm hopeful that the, this concept of reassurance through data and through testing will be a strong value that parents and teacher populations in every district will experience if they if they initiate these programs. So Jesse, this is fantastic. I want to now just shift uh, briefly <clears throat> before we close to the to the future, and let's start with kind of COVID because this has now become your expertise, even if it perhaps wasn't uh, initially, right? Lucky, so, lucky me, yeah. <laughs> lucky you. Uh, what do you see happening with this uh, disease? You have now ample experience with what it takes to do testing. Yes, there is uh, this discussion on these new variants coming out, and the UK currently, you know, has basically shut down. Um, do you think that these kinds of testing regimes, uh, I guess, even absent COVID, I mean, can this be extrapolated to in future pretty much any disease, or or is a lot of this really predicated on a logic that's specific to this particular COVID? No, I think you're exactly right. Trond, I think the f- new frontiers of low-cost, easily deployable diagnostics, one, and there's a lot of startups and excitement in that space, and the frontiers of vaccine production, data sharing, you know, to analyze the genetics of the disease, to share the data, and to make vaccines on demand really quickly. Those two frontiers of rapid, low-cost diagnostics and rapid um vaccine production, I think are going to bode well for confronting the many infectious diseases that we we face today, not to mention the pandemics of the, of the future. We're trying to think a lot about what's the future look like for infectious diseases, not my area of expertise, but I, th- I think it's um, going to be a lot brighter than the past for those two particular reasons. And, you know, the, the urgency of this moment has really galvanized that change. I'm quite hopeful uh, that in the next year we're going to see a you know a, a return to normal, uh, but you never know. And so I think increased vigilance of all of these things that we're doing, masks and distancing, having testing data available. We need to get to a seventy or eighty percent uh, you know vaccine acceptance rate um, to produce an adequate level of community immunity, so-called herd immunity. But I think we're going to get there, and I hope we get there by the summer. You know, there's a lot of discussion, obviously, in in some news circles also about the fact that this uh, new first vaccine, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, and also the Moderna vaccine, they're all mRNA vaccines. And I've heard from, um, I guess, different people than I expected, some 
skepticism around the fact that these are so new. And just, you know, some people are just saying, well, because they're new, they're skeptical. Uh, the benefits are, of course, enormous, right? I just heard uh, yesterday that the founder of BioNTech said that he thinks, first of all, that this new variant can be handled within the original yeah. uh, Pfizer, uh, you know, BioNTech vaccine, but also that if it cannot, he pledges that he can fix it in six weeks. And that's kind of unheard of. Yeah. Fix it in six weeks and then perhaps get a rapid uh, emergency use authorization after six weeks. I mean, compare that to 10 point, I believe it's 10.5 years is the average yeah. in a big study yeah. I read on on vaccine development, right? I think most most scientists, I mean, there's a lot of unknowns, not only with these new variants, but, you know, there's future, you know, viruses evolve and infectious agents evolve. And so there's a lot of unknowns in the future. And the more selective pressure through drugs or vaccines or anything that you put on a disease, the more, you know, evolutionary pressure there is to enrich for, for escapers. So that's why it's important to vaccinate as rapidly as possible. Most scientists today, and this may change tomorrow, but most scientists today think that given the way the immune system responds to a vaccine in particular, this type of vaccine, specifically producing thousands of different antibodies, each hitting the virus in different ways, that it's going to be very difficult, um, you know, to escape. But the, the, the founders of these companies, as, as you and I have both read, are, are promising to know for sure um, in the next couple of weeks. But I do think that, you know, with all new technologies, whether they be CRISPR-based diagnostics, which I think are a big part of the future, or mRNA vaccines, or blood biopsies for cancer, or organoids growing in a dish for cancer. With, with all of these futuristic frontiers, or CRISPR you know, engineering, with all these frontiers come unknown risks and you know, sometimes unrecognized benefits. And so I think the argument is to move as a scientific community as nimbly as possible to quickly understand in a responsible way what are the benefits and what are the risks and drawbacks of any new scientific frontier and innovation. I think if we're smart and responsible and capable, we'll make decisions about technologies and, uh, and we'll test them carefully so that we'll be able to extract tremendous value from the benefits without the risks. But there will be things we don't know about mRNA vaccines. I hope that they're extremely minor because the fact that there's 90% or 95% um, you know, reduction in uh, COVID uh, cases is just extraordinary. So something would be, have to be extremely challenging um, to, to, to negatively balance uh, that. So I'm, I'm very optimistic, but I am cautious because- Well, I think that Jesse, the fact that you're cautious, I, I think we're pointing towards the different sort of science 2.0 here, right? Which, which is, uh, has a bit of caution and has a bit of this, I guess, justifiable um, skepticism and also openness, right? You're showing the public, you have to show your cards because as you pointed out with your example uh, of working with the Broad Institute uh, across stakeholder groups, science isn't the answer to every question. And, and you know, you, you, you can say science says X, and of course, there's as many opinions as there's scientists, but, but also, even if all the scientists say X, the question may be Y, right? The, the question is different. And so you cannot, with science, decide everything. And I think people don't like that, to have science, uh, you know, down their throats. Well, so we like, you have to... 
Yeah, we like dogma. It's this, it's black or it's white, it's up or it's down. And, and I think the real world, actually, that we experience, you know, is not like that. The real world is many, many shades of gray. As scientists, it's called a PhD, a doctor of philosophy, because the process of science is to pursue facts, to eliminate challenges, to eliminate other hypotheses, and then to continually refine those facts. It's there aren't definitive answers. There, there's only this process. And so scientists are naturally skeptical. Scientists are naturally challenging their assumptions. And it's because of that complexity that communicating science to policymakers and to the general public is often challenging. It's not the answer, but that there are shades of gray. And so I think the appreciation of the complexity of science and what we know about the natural world, uh, whether it's infectious disease or anything else, um, requires really excellent communication skills amongst some of our, our, our leading scientists. Um, and you see this, I think, in some of our amazing scientific leaders. They're, they're not just brilliant, but they're excellent communicators and they're excellent influencers because they can communicate that complexity honestly um, uh, and very clearly. Well, Jesse, you, you must have learned from the best and then become one yourself because this was a very clear communication about uh, two potentially extraordinarily complex topics to discuss, both cancer and, and COVID. And I thank you very much for having enlightened me and hopefully some of our listeners on what is possible when you take this open source approach where you are inclusive but also seek kind of insight and data outside of the boundaries and confines of, of kind of your own little corner. And yeah. I thank you very much for that. Happy to be here, Trant. Thanks for the interview. You have just listened to episode 81 of the Futurized podcast with host Ronarne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was 2x community science. Our guest was Jesse Bohm, the scientific director of the Broad Institute's Cancer Dependency Map Initiative and an institute scientist at the Broad Institute of MIT Ann Arbor. In this conversation, we talk about mobilizing the unique SciTech environment for health in Massachusetts. We discuss the Broad Institute's ethos and the Bohm Labs cancer collaboration for rare diseases, including health tech map test and trace efforts and the three-month pilot program of weekly COVID testing for certain students and staff in the Wellesley public school system. How that got, got off the ground through the help of Jesse's and the role of the Wellesley Education Foundation's COVID-19 Innovation Fund and what has been accomplished. We discuss the future of health tech and the future of community scientists and community resource maps towards Science 2.0. My takeaway is that community science is crucial at this juncture in history. We can no longer take for granted that people listen to experts, nor should we. Rather, it needs to be a dialogue. Trust is and should be contingent on proving value and disclosing evidence and rationale. Also, the data is increasingly all of us, so we are the science. This is a very different future than many had imagined, yet it might be the only one available. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 55, AI for Medicine, episode 19 on digital health in future pandemics, episode 26, how to write a book on the future of healthcare, episode 30 on artificial general intelligence, episode 35 on augmented reality, episode 47 on how to invest in sci-fi tech, episode 67 on the future of longevity, 
and episode 54 on the future of AR. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.